Welcome to the 370th of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today, I welcome long COVID activists, Teresa Tyndall Akintunwa and Lisa McCorkle. Just a reminder, you can usually catch COVID Calls live on weekdays at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics as always, please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. We're getting uh, great suggestions for future programs, and right now we're booking COVID calls all the way out into the end of the year. So if you have an idea for a COVID calls episode, please get in touch. As of today, November 2nd, 2021, there are 5,008,694 deaths from COVID-19 globally. That's according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. I've been reading an obituary or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic, and I'd like to continue that now. The headline is Britain's longest known coronavirus patient dies aged 49. This was written by Miranda Bryant and appeared June 20, excuse me, 19th of June, 2021, in The Guardian. man believed to be Britain's longest known coronavirus patient has died after deciding to withdraw from treatment. Jason Kelk, age 49, was admitted to St. James University Hospital in Leeds after contracting COVID-19 in March of 2020. He died in June, surrounded by his family after being transferred to a hospice. His wife, Sue Kelk, shared news of his death on Friday, on that Friday in June, so this comes from June of this year, and said that Kelk, who was a primary school IT worker, passed away peacefully. It's with a very heavy heart that I have to share the sad news that Jason passed away peacefully at St. Gemma's at 12.40 p.m., she wrote on Facebook. Paying tribute to her husband of more than 20 years and soulmate, she said his death was so peaceful. It was definitely important for him to do it on his terms, but he's leaving an awful lot of people absolutely bereft, she told the Yorkshire Evening Post. You might not think he's been brave, but my God, he has been brave. I really think he has. And I just think that this is the bravest thing that you could ever do to actually say, I don't want to live like this anymore. Last month, she told Sky News that she feared her husband had given up after his condition worsened and he started experiencing fainting attacks. Before then, she had been preparing for him to return home, launching a crowdfunding appeal to help pay for it to be converted for him. Elk, who had type 2 diabetes and asthma, was transferred to intensive care in April of last year and remained on the same ward until he went to hospice. Virus damaged his lungs and kidneys, and he developed severe stomach problems, and that meant he had to be fed intravenously. Earlier this year, 2021, he appeared to be recovering, starting to walk and coming off of a ventilator and the 24-hour kidney filter. Before his condition worsened, Kelk said her husband was drinking tea and soup and sending text messages. 
He told the Yorkshire Evening Post in March that he hoped to return home to sit on our sofa and eat takeaway fish and chips with Sue while we watch the telly, something normal like that. He said, my family is what kept me fighting. It would have been a very different year without them here. This condition worsened in May. He had to be put back on a ventilator and then developed two infections. Jason Kelk died surrounded by his wife, mother, father, and sister, and leaves behind five stepchildren and eight grandchildren, two of whom he had never met because they were born in the past year. Okay, let's turn to the conversation for today. Let me introduce my guest to you. Teresa Tyndall Akintunwa is an education specialist, patient advocacy blogger, and founder of the Black COVID-19 Survivors Support Group, an online community aimed at helping African-Americans overcome the misinformation, exclusion, and trauma of having COVID. Teresa herself contracted COVID-19 early in the pandemic back in February of 2020 and has been contending with physical and cognitive impact ever since. My second guest is Lisa McCorkle. Lisa is co-founder and patient researcher with Patient-Led Research Collaborative, a group of people with long COVID who conducted the first and most comprehensive research on long COVID. As a result of her research with the Patient-Led Research Collaborative, she has testified to Congress, presented to the White House COVID-19 Health Equity Task Force, and been featured in The Atlantic and The Wall Street Journal. In her day job, she's a policy analyst at the California Department of Social Services. She received a master's in public policy from the University of California at Berkeley and a Bachelor of Arts in Political Science from the University of California, Los Angeles. Terry Akintunwa and Lisa McCorkle, thank you so much for joining me on Code Calls today. Thank you for having me. Thank you for having us. I'd like to start the way I generally do, finding out where you're calling from and what the pandemic situation is looking like there at the moment. Terry, can I start with you on that? Sure. Um, I'm in Atlanta, Georgia. And um, as you may know, we are, um, I guess, formerly a red state. <laughs> and uh, what that means is that sometimes um, the, the actual condition of the pandemic, you know, um, can um, be misconstrued or interpreted uh, through political um, eyes versus through uh, the reality of what's actually happening. Um, we are having um, some increase in the number of COVID cases that are coming up, but I can tell you um, they're definitely not as severe as uh, cases that I saw coming in uh, up until probably about February of this year. And what's happening in terms of vaccination there in, in Georgia? Any sense of the the rates and the uptake? Sure. Um, I think we've had pretty healthy uh, vaccination rates. Um, people generally uh, are understanding the need for it. Um, the fear of, you know, um, I guess the the myths and, and the conspiracy of, you know, government um, sanctioned vaccines um, does exist in some circles. Um, but overall, most people are uh, are getting vaccinated, but we, we still have, you know, those holdouts. We still have people who um, are extremely distrustful of the vaccine. Um, and I will say definitely that uh, the recent mandates for government workers to get vaccinated has not helped 
um, is something that kind of has further fed into uh, the distrust and conspiracy theories about the vaccine. Um, and, and believe it or not, even socially, there's been some implications. Um, I've, I've seen quite a bit of uh, people disassociating from friends and, and, and peers who have chosen to get vaccinated. Um, that's something we wouldn't really expect, though, right? You know, you, you kind of want your circle uh, that you're going to be exposed to to have the vaccination. And unfortunately, here in Georgia, I'm, I'm actually seeing the opposite. Mm. Lisa, let me bring you in on that same question. Thank you, Terry. Yeah, I'm coming to you from Oakland, California, um, so the Bay Area. And um, here we've seen a pretty um, pretty drastic decrease in cases over the last couple months. Um, the most recent surge is, is going down, which is great. Um, and we have, in terms of vaccination rates, we have nearly 90% of those eligible ages 12 and up um, have at least one dose um, of a vaccine. Um, so just yesterday, um, Alameda County, the county that Oakland is part of, um, rolled back some of the masking requirements, um, but they're moving fairly slowly in terms of um, rolling back any of those uh, restrictions, which I think is is a good move. Um, in in June, it just kind of was a, a free for all. It very quickly, you know, all of our mask mandates were removed, and um, I think that really contributed to the most recent surge. So, I think the the slower we we roll those um, back, the better. Lisa, let me stay with with you uh, and ask you if you wouldn't mind sharing a memory of of this pandemic time. And I realize I usually call this the impossible task because finding one thing that you think sort of stands in for COVID is pretty hard. But is there some moment in time in this pandemic that really sticks with you? Um, yeah, I mean, I I wonder if this would be similar for for most people it was just at the beginning and especially um, for folks that had long COVID. I'm sure it's when they initially contracted COVID. But um, yeah, for me, I think the biggest memory that stands out is I got sick on March 14th, 2020, um, right as the world was shutting down. And um, that whole experience is the reason why I'm here with you today. Um, you know, after a couple months, I realized I wasn't getting any better. Um, I kind of miraculously found a support group online called Body Politic, um, where thousands of other people were also going through the same thing I was. Um, and at that point, no one was talking about long COVID or these um, longer term symptoms that many people were having. Um, and then a subset of us within that support group formed a research group to try to um, just collect all the data that was being shared and um, try to help figure out what was going on with us and why we weren't recovering. Um, and that research group really has been um, my saving grace in, in so many ways this last year. Um, I've met some of my best, closest friends through that, um, have had incredible support while dealing with a disability um, and it's also just provided so many opportunities for advocacy, not only for people with long COVID, but also for people with um, other post-viral illnesses and other chronic illnesses that are um, related to long COVID. 
Terry, let me bring you in. Thank you, Lisa, for sharing that. Same question to you, if there's a, a moment in this pandemic that really stands out for you. Sure. Um, I think the, the moment that stood out the most was when I was able to um, have my first in-person um, visit with my doctor um, last year after the shutdowns. Um, most people were only being able to be seen through televisits. Um, and I recall having um, a very severe headache for months and trying to tell people, you know, about this headache and, you know, hearing the responses that, you know, every single day you have a headache, <laughs> you know, and I'm like, for real, no exaggeration. You know, I have I've had this headache every single day that was becoming quite overwhelming and distressing. Um, but being able to get to the doctor and explain that to her and have her actually um, take it seriously at that point really was impactful for me. Um, it, it's a really terrifying experience to have had COVID, especially earlier on, right? Where there's no information, you know, um, not enough patients who have recovered to really be able to tell their story. Um, and so being um, disconnected from your healthcare provider, you know, during that time, really leaves you hopeless. Um, and I struggled a lot. I, I struggled to get up every day. Um, but to have her hear me and understand that, you know, these symptoms are real. This is not a result of stress. This is not a result of a shutdown. You, you know, um, this is not anxiety that this is a real physical ailment. This, this happening to me. Um, it really was the game changer for me because I felt like I had an ally. And that person didn't have to have had COVID herself for her to have empowered me, but she did by believing me and um, doing what was in her power, you know, to, to do for me. Thanks for sharing that. I think we'll probably want to come come back to that, the way that people, um, when they long COVID um, sufferers, tell their symptoms to the somebody in medicine, how they're reacted to what their reception is, is important. There's something you said there I wanted to just pick back up on real quickly, which is you didn't feel that you could get that kind of interaction in telehealth or you just didn't try. You you really wanted to wait until you could go in and physically be with the doctor to ex explain your situation. I know it's a, it's a personal question. We don't have to touch on it if you want to, but it was an interesting detail, I thought. Sure. Um, well, I would say that I didn't try to a degree. Um, the, the appointments were so far out and books, you know, um, everybody was seeing a doctor. Um, so it was difficult, but, um, also I felt like, you know, this is a physical ailment and I really need to be seen in person. I need my vitals checked. You know, uh, this is not, you know, a moment for talk therapy. You know, I need to be seen in person, uh, and, and assessed. So, um, yes, to a degree, I, I could have gone in earlier, you know, through the tele, um, health appointments, that were available, um, but for my situation and, and just as extreme as my headaches were, I really felt the need to, to be present. Uh, that makes a lot of sense to me. Thanks for thanks for clarifying that. Terry, let me, let me stay with you. I think it's sort of a basic question here that you probably get asked all the time, but how do you define what long COVID is? Good question. Um, the way I define long COVID is basically, um, you know, any person who's really still living with the fallout 
or the side effects um, of the virus, um, dealing with symptoms that did not were not present prior to having contracted COVID. So, uh, you know, those lingering things that you know for sure only showed up, you know, post virus um, that you're still dealing with. That's that's what long COVID is, you know, to me. Lisa, let me bring you in if you want to add any anything to that. And I'm I'm curious also in terms of the the big questions that are out there for researchers. I guess it's probably an unlimited number of questions right now, but also your sense of how you define long COVID and what the research frontier looks like. Yeah, it's one of the the biggest questions that's asked is how do you define long COVID and um the World Health Organization has their own clinical definition. Um, CDC has their own definition. Um, but generally, it's basically what, what Terry was saying, which is, you know, it's having these prolonged symptoms. And it can even come from um, an initially asymptomatic infection. You don't have to have symptoms in the first couple of weeks of, of illness. Um, but generally, what ever kind of the research um, realm and um, healthcare is leaning towards is this definition of um, experiencing symptoms from a confirmed or suspected case of COVID for um, at least two to three months is kind of what the, the agreement is. Um, and many times it is an illness that is fluctuating. So symptoms often come and go. There are relapses. There are different things that trigger um, symptoms to come back or make them worse. Um, the top three symptoms that we see in, in our research as patient-led research collaborative um, is post-exertional malaise. That is where symptoms become worse after some kind of exertion that can be physical exertion, um, mental, emotional, any kind. Um, so post-exertional malaise is is one of the top symptoms. Fatigue and cognitive dysfunction. Those are really the top three symptoms that we see. But it is really an illness that impacts every single system in the body. Um, we've documented over 200 symptoms that people with long COVID experience. Um, and in terms of some of the research questions that people are looking at, the NIH um, is just launching the Recover Initiative, which is their big study on long COVID. Um, and some of the questions they're looking at is um, what symptoms are those kind of like hallmark symptoms of long COVID? How do those symptoms change over time? Um, those are questions that we've answered within our, our surveys. Um, but then on top of that, what are risk factors for um, mm. having more severe symptoms? What are the underlying biological causes of long COVID? Um, what are the overlaps with other post-viral illnesses like ME-CFS, um, like dysautonomia? We're seeing a lot of commonalities between those illnesses. Um, and I think that's, that's what um, the long COVID community is really hoping for. Um, for the NIH Recover Initiative and uh, all these other research initiatives to to look at is, you know, we're really not starting from scratch here. Long COVID is not a new illness. It just is new in the sense that this 
part of COVID is new, um, but post-viral illnesses have been around for decades and there is research on that. So let's build on that research. Um, you know, let's make sure that this research benefits people who have been sick for decades from, from other viruses. Um, and then the other thing, NIH Recover Initiative is not um, touching treatments right now, but there is some, um, some researchers that are looking at what kind of treatments might be effective for people with long COVID. I didn't know much about that um, research trajectory of post-viral illnesses in the, in the past. And is that something, I mean, how would you describe the attention that's been paid to that? Is it a, is it a well-funded area that just has been below the radar or it's been something I haven't paid much attention to, or is this a lightly funded area that we're now rediscovering? It's very lightly funded. Um, it actually, given especially the disease burden and severity of these illnesses, it is one of the lowest um, funded areas of research that mm. NIH funds, that our, our government funds, and even worldwide. Um, and I mean, that's why we have this crisis right now is because this area of research has not been funded. and. You know, there is some, and we don't want to ignore the work that has been done, but it, you know, we could have been so much farther along if, if this had been paid attention to before. Terry, let me uh, bring you back then in on this. You're the founder of the Black COVID-19 Survivors Support Group. Um, talk a little bit about that, if you would, and specifically um, in terms of the research uh, on people of color who've had long COVID, what are the research frontiers there? Is it somehow different from the uh, other research that's that's ongoing? What what particular kinds of work is your community interested in fostering? Okay, thank you. Well, um, the Black COVID, sorry, uh, Black. COVID-19 Survivors um, is an online community. Um, its initial purpose was to provide support, um, not just to the actual survivors, but to the families of the survivors as well, um, and to family of those who, you know, lost their battle with COVID. Um, I was seeing a, a huge need for people to just really be able to uh, gather, you know, um, being um, separate, as we were last year and everybody in isolation, uh, just being able to have that mental and emotional gathering um, was part of a necessary process to our healing. Um, being able to collaborate with others, understand what other people are going through who are similar to you. And, and frankly, being able to, to freely express what, um, what the fears were concerning the uh, COVID as well as reaching out to the resources that were being made available um, and so, um, sorry, but, um, we always have co-hosts and other guests involved and it's fine. It's, it's very welcome. <laughs> right. Right. Um, but, um, my goal, uh, first of all, is to, um, help my audience to be properly educated about COVID to dispel a lot of the community myths, um, and, and rumors. Right. Uh, and to encourage them to really seek um, reliable sources, credible sources of, of information. So that that has been my primary goal. Um, and then secondly, is to um, provide strategies for my members to advocate for themselves. 
um, you know, without COVID, navigating the healthcare system can be very difficult, especially if you are a woman and especially if you are black. Um, and so with those two things combined, you know, in, in a pandemic, something that most people have not encountered before, um, people need ways to speak up for themselves. Um, and not just within the healthcare system, but even, you know, when it comes to uh, their needs on, on a social and economic uh, domain, um, they need ways in order to uh, approach, you know, and solve their problems. So patient advocacy has uh, been hugely on my heart. It's something I fell into. You know, it's, it's not something I have a background in. I'm an educator and trainer by trade but really helping others to see, you know, what paths can I take? What are the questions I need to ask? You know, what is the follow-up that I should consider after seeing the doctor? You know, when is, when is a second opinion, you know, uh, warranted? Um, especially during a, a phase of time in which most of the doctors don't know much more than we do, you know? Um, and so just helping uh, my members to not feel totally lost, you know, and, and clueless and isolated um, has been my goal. As far as um, the research, I, I can um, say this. We, I think that people have made an effort to reach out to the black community and other underserved you know, um, segments. Um, but I think that in the process, it's been a very um, one directional um, effort, meaning um, like I'm approached all the time you know, about, you know, uh, providing surveys, providing survey participants, you know, getting feedback. And it's, it's always kind of a gimme, gimme, gimme type situation where, you know, organizations, uh, universities, individual researchers and so forth are all just trying to get information and they just want the patients to just, you know, somehow just splurge all of, you know, their knowledge and experience without, you know, creating any type of rapport or um, when I say report, I don't mean individual report, but more of, you know, how is this going to benefit them or their community in the long run if I do participate? Right. What is the, what is the benefit to being a part of patient led research? You know, how do I after I've given you know my time to respond to questionnaires and interviews? Um, making an effort to make sure that that information can be understood by the patients and know what its implications are. Um, I don't think that's been done enough. And so part of my role um, is to kind of run relay in a way, you know, to, to help educate my audience about the importance of participation, but also, you know, share what information has come out as a result. I hope that answered your question. Oh, oh so much, so much in what you just described, Terry. I think it's really important. There's one part of it I want to pick up on is the trust issue. And, and you know, I mean, we look at infection rates of COVID in the United States. It has reached into the elder population, uh, African-American population, um, people who are cut off in one way or another from the mainstream of the health system. And, and so I wonder, you know, it, you're part of what you're describing with your group is a, an attempt to repair some trust or give people tools, I guess, to go and seek the help they need if they've already had. I wonder, I know you probably can't, maybe it's hard to generalize, but I wonder if you could characterize that a little bit. You know, when your members of your group 
then have to go back into the health system to get help and describe something which is hard to describe, what kind of tools do they need? How do you help them sort of regain the trust to go back and get the help they need? Right. So establishing trust, you know, obviously can be very difficult. Um, I think one thing that has been helpful, first of all, is explaining, you know, how anonymity works in, in the healthcare system and just in, in research in general. Um, one huge fear is that, you know, if I if I return to my doctor, if I go to, you know, one of these clinics that have, you know, a pop up COVID clinic or that's been provided and, you know, they're going to somehow track me you know, um, and somehow that's going to follow me, you know, to, to some type of disastrous end, you know, <laughs> we don't, you know, know what exactly the end is that people anticipate, but, you know, they really do uh, fear being further segregated. Um, and so helping them to understand just even how does research work, right? You know, why is how you're put into a, a segment and group, but you're not identified, um, this type of education, I know it's, it's a bit extreme and it's a huge order, really, but we have to even educate, you know, my audience on the purpose of the research, how it's done and why it can be trusted. You know, what are some of those markers that we can, you know, look for in a legitimate organization that's seeking to help me versus to exploit me? Um, that right there is is what we're, you know, meeting more of um, within the black community overall in order to establish that trust. Um, and this next, you know, um, knowing what next steps are, you know, um, we kind of hang in the balance. You, you go to the doctor and, you know, they order, maybe they're ordered tests. And then that's kind of like, what's next? You know, people are oftentimes left hanging. They'll get results to simply say, you know, we found something or we didn't find something. Right. And with COVID, unfortunately, oftentimes, certain things are not found and then they think that's just the end of the road. So in order to, you know, establish that trust, we kind of need a map to see, you know, if you have gone to point B, right. And point B is a dead end, you know, will these providers show me what my next step is, help me with my next step, or do I have to come up with the magic question, <laughs> you know, in order to continue to get serviced and to continue to have my issues um, looked into. So um, not knowing what's next, I, I think, and not truly um, telling uh, patients what their options are is one of the reasons why we do have a distrust. So more transparency, uh, more patience in educating the patient um, is how we can establish much more trust. There's a lot of wisdom that you're sharing right now, and I appreciate that. And, and there's something that you've said, the second part of what you were talking about, which um, the research community, and I don't speak for all of them, but um, in the social sciences, certainly we struggle with this too, particularly after disaster. We want to gather data, mm -hmm. but we might want to gather data from communities that are distant from us, either geographically or you know just who we are as, as people, and they're not in our community. How do we do that? It's not that we shouldn't do the research, but you're indicating there is an a, there's an approach which we might call mutual aid, um, in which there has to be some reciprocity there. And I just wanted to highlight that part of what you said because I know there's the researchers who listen to this program are interested um, also to 
to do their work in a way that builds community rather than extracts information from people and puts it in a journal article. I, and you're nodding, so I'm hoping that's resonating with your experience. Absolutely, it's absolutely resonating, exactly. The way uh, extracting information, <laughs> you know, that's that's what really what's, what's happening, you know. Um, and to a large degree, I would also say, you know, really, you know, I have to look at these surveys a, a lot um, because that's what I'm approached with most often. And a lot of times, you know, the surveys, um, kind of the proof is in the pudding that they're just simply trying to extract the information is that they're they're not constructed in a way that's considerate of who's on the other end. Okay. So for example, um, I'm a person who loves research, first of all, you know, and I like data. So uh, as a person who already has that type of interest, I myself have been exhausted by the length of a lot of the surveys, by the language of many of the surveys, um, even some of the information that was asked that I really wasn't sure, like, well, why are they, you know, asking this and how does that kind of fit into the, the grand scheme of things? Right. And so if you think about the average, you know, um, person in, in the black community who may not necessarily have an advanced, you know, post-college education and, and understand, you know, um, the little bit extra that I might know, um, it can be very intimidating, you know, to participate. Um, it can be very intimidating to, to talk across social economic status with those researchers, with those doctors, with all of the people with the letters behind their name. Um, that could be a very intimidating process. And so in order to, to get the information that you're looking for, uh, I really think there needs to be um, more liaisons within the community who are working with organizations like you know, patient-led research um, who are working with the CDC and the NIH, uh, who are already embedded in the community. And those resources should be utilized and leveraged as much as possible versus, you know, having new faces at the doorstep who are simply saying, you know, give me, give me, give me, you know, we want to know all about, about your experience. And also just in that process, um, having the empathy um, is necessary. Well, how do you express, you know, empathy, you know, when you're trying to look at people as subjects? Understanding that, you know, they oftentimes need re connection to resources and they need to know about the resources that are available. There's sort of a, um, you know, I guess a mistaken ideal that, you know, we'll put all the resources up on the CDC website and then all the people who need to know, you know, about them will just you know, in droves, go to the CDC website and start looking up, you know, and finding local area um, uh, resources. Right. And that's just that isn't considerate. <laughs> you know, it doesn't take into account, you know, who it is that you're trying to drive and who you're trying to inform. So, you know, really being able to reach people um, with the language that they understand, with people who are familiar to them, um, who understand the struggle uh, that they've been through, who understand even the history of, um, you know, uh, the history of distrust and uh, that is there with the healthcare system. Um, all of that, you know, is a major factor in being able to gather the information that you, that you need. 
So just taking a more sympathetic approach, um, as I said, and um, speaking on the level that allows people to say, okay, even though I'm giving them this information, they have shown me, you know, that here are some other routes and places to go look into that may be a help. Just want to give people a quick reminder, you're listening to COVID Calls, and I'm talking to Terry Akintunwa and Lisa McCorkle today about long COVID. Lisa, let me bring you back into the conversation here and ask you about the Patient-Led Research Collaborative, and maybe tell us what Patient-Led Research is and what this organization advocates for. <laughs> we were chatting for a moment before we started here. You testified before Congress recently too. So um, you're getting attention paid to these issues. They're out there, but I'm curious to know what the organization is doing and, you know, what its main objectives are at this time. Yeah, thank you for that question. Um, so Patient-Led Research Collaborative is a group of people with long COVID. We all have a variety of backgrounds in some sort of research. Um, my background is in policy and advocacy um, and some data analysis. And we have neuroscientists, we have physicians, we have um, people who are experienced in machine learning, just a wide variety of skills and backgrounds. Um, most of us got sick at the beginning of, of all of this in, in March 2020. Um, and we have at this point issued, um, two big reports. Um, so one was the first that first research that was done on long COVID. This was in May of 2020. Um, the second one we published in July, um, which I can share that link, um, to that. And this is, so all of our research is done by patients in collaboration with patients and for patients. Um, and that really is what the, what our whole, um, thing is about is, is patient led research. We've seen just how valuable, um, having patients at the table in any research can, can bring. And I mean, Terry really hit the nail on the head with this. I mean, I've seen and have taken so many surveys and been a part of research that I don't even know how to answer the question because it's not framed in a way that I understand or that mirrors my experience. And it's just so very clear that like no patient was involved in the development of that survey. Um, and, you know, often it's not culturally competent. It's not using language that um, would make sense to, to many people that are taking the survey. Um, and throughout this whole the last year and a half and, and being part of patient-led research collaborative, um, you know, we, our main mission is yes, to, to do research, um, on our own that is, you know, done by people with long COVID, but also to partner with bigger institutions and helping them make their research better. Um, 
because, you know, that we're pretty limited in the type of research that we can do. We don't have access to labs and we can't run blood tests and, you know, we, we have a lot of limitations. Um, but that being said, we can partner with those labs and make sure that people who are part of those research studies are getting their data back. Just like Terry was, was mentioning, you know, that people are getting that reciprocity, that it's not just a gimme, gimme, gimme situation. Um, and that the research is going to actually make a difference, that it's asking the right questions. Um, so often research is done. I think, um, you know, often maybe it's an interesting hypothesis that a researcher has, but it, the answer to it may not have a very valuable impact on patients' lives. Um, and so just making sure that researchers are asking the right questions that will get help to um, patients sooner and that will give them valuable information by participating. Um, and ideally, I mean, a big part of this is, you know, often I'm sure Terry has had this experience as well. Um, we as patient-led research and many others um, have been asked to give feedback on surveys. And, you know, the research is research community is kind of getting um, wind of the fact that their research is going to be better if they involve patients. But so often that work is unpaid. It's not compensated. It is seen as like, um, I'm not entirely sure why, it, why it's not compensated because I think the value that we add is, um, is immense and really helps with the research. And especially with people who have an illness that the hallmark symptom is, you know, don't exert yourself, don't push yourself too right. much. We need to make sure that, um, you know, that is being understood by researchers and that we are being compensated for, for our contributions. Just to follow up on that, I mean, you shared a, a link to an article characterizing long COVID in an international cohort, seven months of symptoms in their impact. I mean, first of all, I'm just really, as you just said, I mean, the fact that this is patient-led research led by people, as you just pointed out, where the number one symptom of long COVID is, is um, exertion and, and stress related to exertion. That's really, that's really profound. Um, it's also, it's in the Lancet. I mean, so this is finding its way into super established venues. Say a little bit more about that process. And I think you were just getting into that there in your final comment about compensation, about, you know, how seriously this work might be taken. It, what you're describing, we might be on the sort of a breakthrough moment for a new model of research, but I don't want to, I don't want to overstate it. I mean, I hope you're not overstating it. That's, um, you know, that's largely what patient-led research collaborative is, is aiming for. We're working um, with, PCORI and um, with Patient-Centered Outcomes Research Institute um, on a hopefully developing a model where this type of research is um, more sustainable. Because at this point, we, you know, we've been lucky enough to get a, a couple very small grants just the last few months. But for well over a year of our work, we were completely unfunded and just working for free and knowing that this information is valuable. And if we are not going to do it, then no one is going to. Um, but it's, you know, we're just getting to the point where we're being compensated and have enough power that we can 
demand that compensation. Um, but we want to make sure that this that type of model and that compensation is extended to beyond our group, other long COVID groups, but also other illnesses. And so that other patients um, can do their own research and, and build a similar model to ours. Just uh, recently, I had um, Yale epidemiologist Greg Gonsalves on as a guest on COVID calls. And, you know, Greg has been a real outspoken um, critic of not only the Bush administration, but uh, Bush administration, the Trump administration, um, but also Biden on the vaccine issue. But, you know, Greg's background is one which I think is interesting for this conversation because, you know, he comes out of the HIV AIDS activist community. And I'm not sure they were calling it patient-led research in those days, but it's a quite similar model that it's it's really the, the community um, of those who are impacted by the disease and those who surround them and can make solidarity with them who are simultaneously having to learn what it is and, ex- and express that um, scientifically, but also be activists. And that's a, that's a tall order. That's a lot to ask people to do when they're also managing disease. So I guess, I mean, that comes to a question, Lisa, I want to ask you first, and then Terry, I'll come to you. How do you build um, stamina in your organization? I mean, I'm, I'm concerned about that. You know, how, how will you be able to sustain the work going forward? It's hard to prepare for testimony to Congress. It's difficult to prepare uh, a research study that goes in the Lancet. How will you carry the work forward? Yeah, and I, I want to briefly touch on that. I mean, ACT UP and um, TAG and all of the HIV AIDS activists that came before us really opened a lot of doors for us and enabled us to, um, I think, be taken more seriously and have the opportunities of testifying to Congress. Um, they laid a lot of the groundwork for that. So I appreciate you bringing, um, bringing that up. Um, in terms of sustainability, you know, we are just so at risk of burnout. Um, and I don't entirely know how we're going to keep going. Um, I think it's just we know that there's so much work that's still left to be done. And we care so much about our community that we know it. We just have to keep on working. Um and I think that it's finally coming to a point where people are able to turn their attention from the acute COVID um, situation and realizing that there's this giant wave of disability that has been here for a year and a half now. But, um, you know, people maybe have, I think, the resources and the time to pay attention to it now. Um, and maybe we're being loud enough. So I'm hopeful that that will lead to to more funding and people being able to turn um, their full attention to this work. But I mean, one of the, it, it's just, it's tough where many of us are not getting better. I, I guess I am lucky enough that I have um, gotten significantly better over the last couple months, um, but many people within patient-led research collaborative are still very sick and getting worse. Um, and that's a tough spot to be in when you're trying to, to be an activist. Um, you know, it takes a lot of effort and a lot of energy and you have to jump at these windows of opportunities. Um, so I guess I, 
all that being said, if anyone has ideas for how to not burn out, we're open to them. We're just trying to, to keep going. Um, I'm glad you're feeling better. And Thank thanks you. for sharing that. Um, and, and that's an important part of this not to lose sight of is, is how, how you're doing in all this and, and how your family is doing. Um, and so we just want to remind folks you're listening to COVID calls. I want to come back to you, Terry. There's another topic we want to talk about, which is, um, is kind of on the ground impact of long COVID for people's ability to work. And I wonder if you could speak to that a little bit, what you're hearing, what you know about how long COVID affects people's ability to work, the accommodations that they've been able to get. I think that's a particularly acute question right now because in industry after industry, it seems that the desire is to bring people back to the physical workplace. And so the accommodation to work for home, and we've heard this from the disability rights community throughout the pandemic. Um, you made accommodation for people within a weekend when it was necessary for people to work from home. Please don't discard that knowledge when it's a bit possible for people to come back. And I think long COVID sufferers are right in the middle of that. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about work in the context of long COVID. I think you're muted, Terry. Sure. Um, I, I've seen um, a lot of long haulers um, who are saying that they're not able to return to work. Um, in fact, it's, it's quite surprising um, the number in, in my group alone who have expressed that their physical ailments um, have been so overwhelming that, you know, they're not able to continue on um, working or they're not able to continue in the same line of work that they were doing prior to contracting COVID. Um, as far as accommodations go, um, I've seen, you know, people who have said that they've requested to remain um, remote workers uh, instead of returning to their, you know, physical workplaces, uh, which a lot of people did once the vaccinations became widely available. Um, but outside of that, um, other accommodations, um, people are being met with resistance uh, from their employers. Um, and in lieu of being able to have those accommodations, people are voluntarily leaving their jobs, um, you know, rather than, you know, face termination <laughs> because they're not able to, you know, keep up with the tasks that are required. Uh, for, for their role. Um, in this particular aspect, I think that uh, we could use more advocacy um, in showing um, patients alternatives, you know, um, accommodations that could be made for them uh, that they could propose. Um, and, you know, these are the things that they need to work along with their healthcare provider, you know, to come up with and, and to uh, be able to go in strongly, you know, to their workplace and say, look, you know, um, I want to still work. I can still work, but, you know, we just need a few adjustments. Um, employers, you know, I think they're afraid. They're, they're afraid of liability. Um, when they see, you know, a request for accommodations, there's this kind of, you know, we have to um, take this to our lawyers. You know, it's not just you know, an HR matter, but this is, you know, what type of implications will this have throughout the whole organization? 
Um, and unfortunately, you know, um, it does um, cause a lot of people not to be able to fulfill the duties. Um, I faced that myself. Um, it's an ongoing situation where, you know, um, I felt discrimination and retaliation as a result of having submitted uh, my formal request for accommodations, um, despite it not costing the company any money, despite it not being an interruption to, you know, how business is conducted, um, they still refuse to, you know, um, to grant me, you know, uh, the accommodations and a lot of other types of, of microaggressions, I guess, often are, are the result. I know I experienced it and just, in talking with my community members, I've also seen where, you know, people are having to somehow prove and justify, you know, what their ailments are, what their new disability is. And, um, you know, having approached your job as an able-bodied person and now to have a lot of invisible illness, you know, that, um, you know, you have to defend in a way um, has really made returning to work or resuming work really um, disastrous. You know, it's, it's made it difficult mentally, you know, to, to deal with that struggle of, you know, not being believed or um, not having your value still, you know, being seen as a valuable team member and contributor because of, you know, this one little thing here on the side that, you know, I simply need a little adjustment, you know, but companies are taking um, those adjustments and those accommodations as major threats to um, how they uh, conduct business um, and what their possible liability may be. So um, it's unfortunate, you know, that we don't have, um, you know, it would be great if all of our ailments were very visible and easily, you know, to be seen, but, you know, it's just not what the case is. Um, so whether they're, you know, um, um, mental health issues or whether it's cognitive, you know, changes and, um, or, or the physical, you know, implications of exhaustion and so forth, we have to be able to, um, to, to be met, you know, where we are, and to have an advocate in the workplace who will truly understand that, you know, our desire here is not to have an, I, I caught you moment or I got you moment, you know, at work, but to truly um, get into society. Uh, Lisa, just picking up on that. Uh, you know, in terms of, I mean, is there, can you characterize yet sort of trends across the United States or other countries that you may know of in terms of uh, Americans with Disabilities Act or similar types of laws, complaints, workers' compensation complaints? I mean, is is it yet scrutable what's happening across the country in, in terms of those, those complaints? Because I could imagine that the numbers and maybe this is what the employers are reacting to. I don't. I don't really know or want to characterize their position, but I can imagine. I mean, the numbers are will be large. Yeah, I haven't seen any um, data on the specific complaints and how that what that has looked like. Um, I will say, I mean, this is just to kind of put in context what the issue is. Is that within our um, respondents to our survey. 45% of 
people with long COVID um, required a reduced work schedule. So we're not able to work their full-time schedule they were before. And um, nearly 25% are were unable to work at all. So this is, I mean, when we're looking at millions of people with long COVID and 65% are not able to work their full-time job, this is a huge, huge issue. Um, and accommodations will um, make a big difference. It made a big difference for me. I wouldn't have been able to um, go into work um, and you know continue working if I wasn't telecommuting. Um, I think another one to to add that that hopefully if any employers are listening that they'll consider for any um, of their employees is flex time is huge, especially for long COVID. So being able for people to be able to set their own hours. Um, you know, often people can work a 40 hour week. It's just that they have insomnia, so they can't wake up for an 8am call. Um, or they need to take a lot of breaks throughout the day so that they don't get post-exertional malaise and their symptoms are triggered. Um, but yeah, I mean, there definitely is a lot of issues with getting accommodations. There's a lot of issues if if someone is not able to work getting disability benefits, we're seeing so many, so many people um, get rejected from getting disability benefits. And that is, that has been a problem for decades and decades. Um, and I think, you know, it's just going to become more and more of a problem as the system is not fixed. We're almost up on time in our COVID calls discussion today, but I wanted to, um, just a couple other quick things. I w- hope we can get to one of them i guess it it will be almost impossible to quantify but there must be um i want to ask you how your community sort of grapples with this there must be people who are just really afraid to come forward about this or who maybe they do initially and then they withdraw and i can imagine because of what you were just been talking about both lisa and you terry with what long COVID sufferers face in the workplace but also maybe disbelief and stigma when they go to the doctor or in their own social network and their own in their own families. And so I guess I'm just wondering, you know, how many you're you've both taken the brave step to be organizers and activists you're out front. But I mean, how many thousands of people are suffering in silence right now, Terry? Yeah, um, there really are a lot, uh, a lot of people who um, they, they just don't know what their rights are, first of all. They don't know what their rights are in the workplace. Um, And yes, they are uh, fearing some sort of retaliation, whether it's from, you know, uh, the employer or from peers and coworkers. Um, And so reaching out and and trying to, you know, ask for help um, has a lot of risk involved. Um, A lot of times it can just be easier to give up, you know, than than the press forward. At least that's how it seems. uh, to, to a lot of people. And unfortunately, it's having a huge impact on, you know, um, your economic stability. Um, I, I do see quite a lot of people who are needing to leave their jobs or can't work and they don't have a plan B. There's nothing in place for what they're going to do next and how they're going to pay, you know, their rent, you know, next month. But it's absolutely necessary um, for them to, um, you know, to suspend to suspend working. So, um, yeah, there, there, there are a lot of people who are, who are being affected, um, and they just don't know what to do next. 
you know, um, so it's, it's like what I do know to do, I'm afraid to do, you know, and not really understanding that there are other options. There are advocates out there. There are, you know, um, ADA advocates. You can, you know, speak with an attorney if need be uh, concerning your job. Um, and everything doesn't have to, you know, be um, it doesn't have to be a scary thing to navigate. You know, as, as long as you have advocates, as long as you have someone there who's willing to point you in the right direction, I think that we can really face uh, face anything, whether it's in the workplace or whether it is getting the treatment that we need from our doctors. Um, we just have to know. And we, when we know better, we can do better. But we, we have to have people who are willing to inform us, who are willing to show us the way and um, help us understand, you know, what the next steps could be, you know, what are our options to take out the fear in, uh, in the recovery process. Well, that's a strong message to, to people who may be suffering and, and not yet ready to come forward or getting exhausted by it. Lisa, and just as we're wrapping up, what's your message to lawmakers who have not yet taken this problem on board, and but they may be representing thousands of people in their districts who need support, who need understanding, who need research. What are you saying to them? Yeah, I think, um, I mean, right now we have, in the United States, we have a bill in Congress where we can get increased access to and increased amount of paid family and medical leave and our lawmakers at this point are, are not willing to push that forward. That is huge. Having the ability to rest at the beginning of your illness, um, having the ability to have a um, someone take care of you while you're sick um, can be huge with someone for someone with long COVID. Um, and I think, you know, the disability benefit system has been broken for so long. And the we just do not prioritize i think this this whole pandemic has made it very clear that we do not prioritize disabled people at all um and we have deeply internalized ableism that is something that also causes people to not come forward with their illness or be afraid to tell doctors or their or their loved ones um and quite frankly we just need to get over that we need to be able to provide for every last member of our community. And right now we are letting that, we are letting people fall through the cracks. Um, and it is the people who are most vulnerable. And it's often the people who you don't see because they're not able to be out and about. Um, and we really need to prioritize our disabled population and increase access to disability benefits. There's very easy solutions to a lot of these problems. Um, and we just need to move forward with them. Just a reminder, you've been listening to COVID Calls, and you can usually catch COVID Calls live at 6 p.m. Eastern time. And I want to thank my guests, Lisa McCorkle of the Patient-Led Research Collaborative and Teresa Tendall-Akintunwa of the Black COVID-19 Survivors Support Group. I learned an enormous amount in this conversation today, and I also just want to say thank you for the advocacy you're doing because you're advocating for long covid suffers, but also, as you just said, for people who have disabilities of all types. And I feel like you're advocating for me. I mean, I feel like you're, this kind of advocacy is for everyone. And so I just want to give you a shout out for the work you're doing. Thanks so much. And thanks for joining me on COVID Calls today. Thank you. Thank you so much. 
Stay healthy, everyone. We'll see you next time on COVID Calls.